better believe I'm going to be talking about Wham in this show. Yeah, I love that. Like, we had to really wait for that first iteration of the chorus to come up. Otherwise, it would have made no sense. Look, I could have sung it from the opening line. I know you could have. Oh, I've had the worst Nobody wants to hear that. I've had the worst Wham earworms after watching um, the Wham Netflix doco. I just constantly am walking around going, D-H-S-S, just non-stop. It's just horrendous. So, yeah, warning, if you go and watch the Wham Netflix doco after we talk about it tonight, this will be you too. Yeah, and also you've sent me about 88 text messages saying, have you watched the Wham thing yet? Have you watched the Wham thing yet? Have you watched the Wham thing yet? And I know that the main thing, and I know the main reason that you like the Wham doco (laughs) is that on some level, like try and deny this, because I know you can't, is that you see yourself as George Michael (laughs) and you see me as Andrew Ridgely as the unquestioning, supportive boob that never minds that, like... George Michael gets the OAM. I mean, I'm not that... It's not that literal, but it is a bit, like... All like gold Logie, Lee Sales. All I can say... Crab was the handbag to that event. (laughs) All I can say to that accusation is, guilty feet have got no rhythm. (laughs) Now, should we just get straight into talking about the Wham! Docker? Would you like to do any general housekeeping or anything, or can we just dive straight in? I'm saying it's lovely to be back here on Ghana land and it's nice, it is a delight to be here and to bring a Queenslander here for the purposes of epic punishment and humiliation is just the cherry on the top, people. See, you think it's punishment for me, but I love coming here because I love going to the central markets. I was there within 12 minutes of making it into the city, straight there. Has that Japanese shop with the tiny bowls reopened in its original location or is that... Do you know what? I made a um, rule for myself on this trip that I was not allowed to go looking for tiny bowls because it's just become pathological. And now I'm at the point where I have so many tiny bowls that I chop stuff and put it in bowls that just, it doesn't need to happen. Like it'll say, it'll call, the recipe will call for a pinch of salt and I'll pinch it and put it in a tiny bowl. And then the weird thing is that for the last two days, like I'm very tired right now because my very odd week started with the loogies, of which more later. Um, and then yesterday and the day before, I was doing um, kitchen cabinet shoots where we shoot um, my preparation of the desserts that I've taken to all these people. And it's like, it's the thing that I'm worst at in the world, which is event planning and kind of like, I need to pre-make this and then I need to remember to bring these bowls and then this equipment. And it just always ends with me bursting into tears and having forgotten something very crucial. So that's why I'm very tired at the moment. But tiny bowls were like hugely evident in these kitchen shoots because like the mise en place uh, for television cooking is substantial. The other things that are weird about cooking on television are that it has to be perfectly lit. I actually had to borrow my friend's um, Nick and Lara's kitchen because mine is too reflective or something. And so I'm moving into their house. We've got like a giant crew and multi-cameras in there. And we've also like put in like fake bamboo so that we've shielded their backyard. And um, there's this lighting genius called Remy on our crew whose entire rationale is making sure that the lighting is perfect to the extent where he will, like, flickeringly wave a sprig of twig to make it look like there's, like, 
trees. Dappled light. Dappled light. Wow. He's a dappled light expert. That's incredible. And the other thing is, like, the other day we were shooting, and I'm like, this light's particularly gorgeous. I'm like, wait, hang on. And there's Remy with a mirror, and he's, like, directing the oh. sun onto my, like, custard tart or something. Oh. I'm like, mate, you're That's incredible. Inc it's an incredible art lighting. But it the, is. the kitchen thing was so funny because you sent me a clip from the show or a promo or something, and I said, wow, your kitchen... That looked absolutely amazing. I just not my the, kitchen, guys. That's yeah. Why. She was like, I was like, I barely recognise it. She's like, yeah, prong. It's Nick and Lara's kitchen, <laughs> in which you've been entertained multiple yeah, times. Yeah, I know. And so. then I was like, oh right, it is. It's right, yeah, it's Nick is. and Lara's kitchen. Anyway, I mean, you know, it's lovely to be in somebody else's much nicer kitchen um, and in somebody else's city. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I don't want to kind of divert too far away from Wham. We will return to Wham. Okay. We will re-Wham at some point, fear not. But what I've mainly wanted to ask you, because I've heard it asked many times <laughs> earlier in this week, who are you wearing? <laughs> who are you wearing, Lee Sales? Do you know what? So this top is from um, a friend of Gwen's, actually, and it's called Philosophy, but what's underneath it is pyjamas. <laughs> I have it actually is. verified this. She is wearing a nightie. Get up. Go on. It's a nightie. And while you're at it, like, I'm going to hold your mic and your pen and your bit of paper. Yeah. Because what I'm going to ask you to do now, oh because Strip. given that you've just been an unsuccessful Gold Logie finalist, that's right, everything was looking great until she got her ginger ass whipped by Sonia Kruger. <laughs> who works for Channel... Se anyway, I don't know. It's got to be a coincidence, right? Anyway, um, give me... The pose that you give on the red carpet. How does that work? Because, like, oh yeah, I'm returning the mic to the okay, system. Okay, this is it's it's a really difficult thing. And so this year, actually, I asked the advice of Mary Ioannidis, who made my dress, who was just the most divine human, and Lauren Boutros, who is the stylist who works for the ABC. And I said, what? Because there's so many ways you can do it. There's like, do you put your weight on one side? Do you put it on the other side? What do you do? Where do you put your hands? Do you put them on your hips? Do you angle your body slightly, which some people say like, makes you look more slim? But then most of the time when you're posing, when you angle like this, they go, now just turn the top half of your body. So it's this endless kind of <laughs> array of chaos, yeah. Anyway, they said to me Senior in the particular Picola dress... told me once that like, you put your hand up higher than you ordinarily would, like oh. higher than your actual waist, and apparently... That is the thing. And then you do something with your leg that I've forgotten, but I think it's a bit like... Except I'm so tall. If I put my hand up higher than my actual waist... You're like, right. Look how long yeah, I look. Yeah, you're right. That I looks look ridiculous. like I'm on stilts, yeah. right? That would be yeah. madness. Yeah. So this year, because I was wearing a very tight-fitted dress, they said, don't just put your weight on both of your feet and just hold your arms still. But my arms, because it was very fitted and kind of beautiful and sleek, they couldn't move beyond that anyway. So every time I wanted to have a drink, I'd have to go... No, actually, because I was sitting next to her, I'm like, here you go, love, come on. It's like feeding a baby sparrow. Um, the other thing, but so Sales was wearing this very beautiful dress, very kind of like old Hollywood sort of long column black dress, but then this big sort of sash, a dramatic sash that also trailed on the ground. Which is such a sensible idea when you're about to be walking down... Um, you know, a, a red carpet next to Karl Stefanovic, you know, <laughs> and other people who are not renowned for their physical grace. I think, I feel like it's just, uh, anyway, 
it all went well. I didn't see you on the red carpet because I was busy no. hiding in Costa's beard because uh, <laughs> when you're from the ABC, nobody really wants to see you on the red carpet. So the publicist will go, go walk down the red carpet. I'm like, I don't want to walk down the red carpet. They're like, go walk down the red carpet. I'm like, I don't want to walk down the red carpet. <laughs> walk down the red carpet. And what you actually get is a bunch of photographers going, could you get out of the way because, like, <laughs> Sonia Kruger's right there. And, in fact, I got hit. I mean, this is legitimately the only interaction I had with anyone on the red carpet was I got hit in the face by a boom mic uh, <laughs> from a crew that was, like, bustling through because Ricky Lee... What's her last name? Um. Coulter? She is lovely, by the way. I just can never remember her name because Ricky Lee is already so interesting that I run out of interest by the end of the name. But, like, there's only one Ricky Lee, apart from the one in America. This is the Australian one, and she turned up looking unbelievable, wearing essentially two bits of dental floss sort of here. <laughs> it was, like, a masterpiece of engineering. And um, this film crew next to me went... Woo! and like swiveled when she appeared and I got the boom mic in my face yeah. and I'm like, ah! <laughs> and then I went, okay. I think my red carpet so we then moment saw, is over. We then met when we came inside and I realised when I sat down because my dress was black and the sash was white, I, I and suddenly realised... she had to into it at the venue because she couldn't bend enough to get into a car. <laughs> so True story, right? I then realised when I sat down and it, they're about to serve a meal, I thought, oh no, my earrings just got stuck. I'm going to have to do this for the rest of the show. <laughs> oh, hang on a minute. Can you fix that? This actually me? happened to us at, at the Logies because we were there. And... Um, <laughs> and and, oh, my God, this is worse than I thought. <laughs> oh, shit. Like, this is Thank the hidden you. cost of stardom, people. Um, so this happened I've to us because Kumi Taguchi came around wearing this incredible, like, confection of a gown. Yes. And um, she um, <laughs> leaned in and gave me a hug. And she was wearing this sort of, like, tulle sort of thing. It was amazing. And then she kind of straightened up. And she's like, how are you, girls? I'm like... What point should I tell you that my clip-on earring is now adhered it to was, your sleeve? And, and Kumi's Kumi, gone, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> like, and she's like, have I ripped your earlobe off? I'm like, lady, I don't have my ears pierced. This is all pretend. But my clip-on earring is now nesting on your arm. So I've sat down at the table and then the white sash is, like, in my lap. And I've suddenly realised oh, my God, I'm going to have to be really careful here because there could be an easy tendency to be eating and then think that that's the napkin and just pick it up and, like, and then have a dirty mouth mark on it. And then to my delight, I noticed, oh, actually, the napkin's black, so that's fine. I should be able to manage that. So I've put the black napkin on my lap. Then it's fallen off. And as Crab's mentioned, I can't really bend over. So I've said to Crab would you mind picking up my napkin for me? And I'm watching her, and she's like, she's trying to pick up the white sash, and every time she tries to give it to me, there's just more and more and more white sash. And I'm going, it's right there. It's, she's like, it's, it's not coming. I just handed her a lot of sash before I worked out that... Oh, it's black, I was right. barking up the wrong <laughs> napkin. So that was our Logies for 2023. It was so shocking. I mean, the thing is... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I haven't been to the Logies since I was nominated. I know it was 10 years ago because my daughter, who is now 10, was a baby. Like, oh, she wow. was, like, three months old. And I went to the Logies because I was... <laughs> this is terrible. I was nominated as best newcomer. <laughs> I'm like, 
I'm 40 and I'm very tired. I'm not really new at anything. But anyway, thank you. Um, I didn't win. And um, I, we had to have a room upstairs where Jeremy was with baby Kate, who was the most uncooperative infant ever, just would not do bottles or anything. She's just like, mm, I just need to be on you. And um, so I just zoomed up and down the elevators all night, breastfeeding her, and then went to bed at, like, 9.30. Um, <laughs> so... I have a vexed history with the Logies, but the main thing that I really find almost psychotically anxiety-inducing about that event is that I never recognise any of the famous people. And I'm always <laughs> like, hi there, you seem nice. And they're like, oh, I'm, you know, person X from, you know, something famous that I then feel really <laughs> stupid for not recognising. I'm sure I must have told you this story before, but I had that happen to me once. I got but it wasn't at the Logies, I got in a lift and the man in the lift was extremely familiar and so I thought that I knew him and so I overcompensated with the, oh, hi, how are you? Oh, good, yeah, great. And I'm racking my brains like, is it a parent of a school friend? Is it like someone from work trying to figure it out? It was Alf from Home and Away. Oh. <laughs> and then I've kind of realised, I thought, oh, no, he would get that all he the really time. He really would, Paul yeah. Can we talk about the Wham Doco? Yeah, yeah go for Okay, it, go the Wham Doco. So... I highly recommend it if you're, a, you know, if you kind of had your youth in the 1980s and... The youth. Were you a fan of Wham in the... Yes, I was. And I okay. went to Two Worlds Primary School where the key items in the 1980s were a Choose Life t-shirt. Remember that, like, brief period for which fluoro yes. stuff? Like, yep. So I had a pair of fluoro socks that I think, pretty sure I wore to the school disco. I never had, like, a fluoro t-shirt but I had those socks and they were everything I had the choose life shirt which was a prize prize possession um so I absolutely loved Wham childhood friend Mandy had make it big which we just played on high rotation absolutely loved them and so watching the Wham doco it is honestly it is such a joy bomb if you grew up watching that music and the thing my friend that I was watching it with said wasn't it nice to know that the happiest music in the world was being made by the happiest boys in the world? And they were actually just having a hoot because they really had wanted to be in a big band together and then it kind of went beyond their wildest dreams. The thing that was the re real revelation about it for me was I really knew very little about Andrew Ridgely. And I had thought, like pretty much everyone did, that Andrew Ridgely was just some dude who was riding George Michael's coattails. But the fascinating thing about this doco is that Andrew Ridgely at the start was the confident, outgoing one, and George was painfully shy. And there was this lovely anecdote where George shows up at their primary school. They met when they were 12, and he comes in, and they showed a photo of George at that age, and he was this chubby, glasses-wearing little dude with this long Greek name, and he's walked in, and the teacher's gone, right, who wants to look after the new kid? And one kid puts his hand up, Andrew Ridgely. And so then they became best buddies. They were absolutely inseparable best mates and they used to love music and sitting in their bedrooms and all the rest of it. And then they got this band going in their late teens. The thing that was so phenomenal was Andrew Ridgely, so he was kind of the driver of it for the longest time because George was so shy and insecure. And then George, over time, kind of found himself. And the amazing thing was that there was, didn't really seem to be any competition. Andrew Ridgely was actually so stoked that his friend was kind of working out who he was. And then towards the end of it, you see um, 
when, when they're about, Wham's about to break up and George is going to have his solo career and they do this huge, huge concert with Elton John and Andrew Ridgely is just singing backup vocals and he's having the time of his life. He's absolutely loving it. And the other thing that I thought spoke volumes about Andrew Ridgely was um, that George Michael told him, I think when they were 18 or 19, that he thought that he was gay. Um, well, he knew that he was gay. And Andrew Ridgely kept that secret forever until it came out um, later on. And when you look at interviews of them in the era, Andrew Ridgely sitting there with his arm around George Michael. He's so completely comfortable and supportive with it. He was like the best friend that you could ever wish for. He was amazing. Do you know, I think that often you can tell a lot from um, famous people who have remained friends with people that they were friends with when they were, like, much younger. Um, I mean, I, I noticed that about you, actually, um, even though Mandy's my nemesis in so <laughs> many ways. <laughs> She isn't. Um, <laughs> but I think... Lisa Miller is. I think... <laughs> did she put together a video for your Logies? Thing it, was a it was a bold was bid like, for like, the... Yeah, it was. Yeah. Still failed. Um, anyway, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that that little joy shot is all about the sincerity of that friendship oh. and the unconditionality of it because oh. fame is such a warping thing, right? Like, it can just bring about all these pressures that nobody even ever plans or is aware of. And that was the true delight of that doco, for sure. Well, and interestingly, there's a doco that I talked about on the podcast before, which is George Michael Freedom Uncut, which you can also see. Um, and it picks up from the start of George Michael's solo career, and in fact came out before this Wham! doco. And George Michael makes the point that he, that kind of, Precipitated a really precipitated a really bad um, period in his personal life because he's then this massive star and faith comes out and it's one of the biggest albums in the world and he's now no longer with Andrew Ridgely and of course it's the pre mobile phone era and so you're not able to keep in daily contact and he's realised that well what actually made it fun and kept me grounded was that it was me and Andrew and so I had some connection to who I actually was and my old life and then when that was removed then all of a sudden he just felt completely lost. And in fact, there's a wonderful bit of colour in that where he says, I'm sure everyone remembers what the, the faith look was with the jeans and the um, bomber jacket and the glasses. And George Michael says, it was the worst. Like, I couldn't make eye contact with another human being for two years because I had to wear those glasses everywhere. They were like really reflective as yeah, well, weren't they? Yeah. Like, totally hiding from everybody glasses. I love the bit of colour as well in the Wham! doco where they're shooting the film clip for last Christmas and the director actually was filling the glasses. They're having a kind of party in it at the ski lodge and the glasses were actually full of real wine. And so... George Michael and Andrew Ridgely in the voiceover are saying, you know, everyone was actually having a party. Like, the vision that you see in Last Christmas is actually all of us really having a fun time. And then George Michael says the thing that strikes him looking back at it is that there's so much hair. You can barely see the people for the amount of hair. <laughs> it was a time of high hair volume, that's true. It certainly was. There's another... Um, th so there's three docos. She's not finished with... Uh... <laughs> She's not finished with the real life of George Michael. How can there be more documentaries about George Michael? There's so many. So there's George Michael Freedom Uncut, which is, I forget which streaming service it's on. There's um, Wham!, which is on Netflix. And there's George Michael Portrait of an, Portrait of an Artist, which is on SBS. I liked that one the least because the Wham! one clearly... <laughs> like, I love it. I won't say anything more. Keep going. Connoisseur as I am of Wham documentaries. 
Um, the Wham! one on Netflix is clearly has the heavy involvement of Andrew Ridgely. George Michael Freedom Uncut was being produced by George Michael before he died, and it has all these amazing people in it, like Stevie Wonder and um, Elton John, and people that George Michael did collaborations with, musical collaborations with. And then George Michael Portrait of, Portrait of an Artist is interesting, but it's more people who are kind of one step to remove, who are commentating on the Wham! phenomenon, so you feel like you're getting the kind of outsider's view rather than the insider's view. As a Wham! connoisseur, I still enjoyed it, but I'd, it was third on my list. And now for and the rest of our show. <laughs> and this is what I live with. <laughs> I do have a little segue here, and that is that um, the rock star documentary that I watched recently was actually about minimal hair. And it's been a very weird couple of weeks, apart from the fact that I've been like absolutely flat out. About two or three weeks ago, I watched the Sinead O'Connor documentary. Um, and it's called Nothing Compares, and it's on, still on SBS. It's a terrific piece of work. Now, um, I have been a bit funny about Sinead O'Connor because I used to listen to her album, The Lion and the Cobra, nonstop with my late elder brother. So I've been a bit not listening to it because it's a bit like... Ugh. But I sat down and I watched that doco, and I was so overtaken with admiration for that woman. I just thought... There's this incredible, incredible sequence of her singing at the Emmys. She would have been about 19 or 20, so young. Um, and she sings that song, Mandinka, which is the most sort of life-giving, kind of exuberant song. She's pregnant and she's just belting it out. She's shaved her head. Nobody knows why. She can't quite explain it either. Um, and it's the Emmys where I think Public Enemy was sort of banned from the Emmys because they weren't proper music or something and she thought that was bullshit so she shaved the public enemy like um, you know emblem into her head and when she belted out her song she was sort of expressing solidarity with public enemy anyway just to look at her face she's so young and oh. so fierce and I hadn't really gathered I mean I sort of knew a little bit about her life story I hadn't appreciated just how traumatic her childhood was and I found like the documentary is so affecting it's just such an extraordinary portrait of this powerful young woman who like the thing that I learned mainly about it was how little she valued her stardom you know that point at which on the late night show she rips up a portrait of the Pope and she just goes no you're real enemy you know and then she gave no warning to the producers that she was going to do that. She just pulled it out of her bra and ripped it up. And it was the picture of the Pope that had hung in her Huge. mother's house. And, I mean, that just... It kind of destroyed her and she didn't care. Anyway, that album, I continue to think, is one of the great albums of all time. It's absolutely extraordinary that it could be produced by such a young woman. Mm. Her voice is um, almost ethereally miraculously perfectly beautiful but also she will always wreck it by going into a growl or a sort of roar I mean it's just such power anyway and the song on that album called Troy is one of the most powerful pieces of writing I think I've ever orally experienced it's amazing anyway 
So I then, after watching that documentary, started listening to that album again. And in fact, I got my daughter, Audrey, who's 16, listening to it, and we were listening to it on a loop. And then I woke up 10 days ago and saw the news that she had died, and I just thought, it was just, it completely undid me. I could just, and I don't think I was by myself, because no. there seemed to be this, particularly of, among women of my age or our age, you know, there was this just, complete despair but this I, I think because she like when you said the word power before like that's probably the word that I associate with Sinead O'Connor like she just had a real innate sense of strength and kind of just projected this sense of this is who I am and I'm uncompromising about that and like it or leave it kind but of also thing. if you see her in interviews just this sort of also the shyness mm. and um kind of not timidity, but like anyway. I, she so was is just the like doco? Is it like? Is it about her whole life, or is it about one album, or what's the focus of it? Well, she's. I mean, she's in it. You can hear her talking, and I think there's an like she wrote a memoir, which I've not read, but apparently the audio book of it is amazing, um, oh. um, which I'm racking up to listen to. Um, I think it was mainly her recollections about that period of her life when she went from being nobody to being you know, on the cover of Rolling Stone in an incredibly short amount of time and the impact that it had on her and, you know, she was she had a baby very young um, and the impact it had on her relationship. Anyway, I mean, she obviously spent the subsequent years really trying to find a place of peace mm. and I think it really made me think about how people who experience trauma early in life sometimes get by by creating art and sometimes it sustains them for a while but maybe it can't forever which is what I find really tragic about um her death but anyway it like yeah it was kind of yeah it's been a big couple of weeks but anyway I found that very <laughs> I yeah was a bit cleansing I think anyway what an incredible woman. Um, and I'm going to, now that we're talking about slightly sad stuff, I'm going to get through the rest of the sad stuff super quick so that we can get out the other end of it. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of things. One of the other reasons that I have been sad in the last little bit is that my beautiful sister-in-law, Anissa, um, who you know, of course, yes. she's the lady who said that you should hurt me physically if I ever refer to myself as an idiot on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Anyway, she was sick for a long time. She had cancer and she died a couple of weeks ago here and um, we were all lucky that we got to come back and talk to her and, um, and see her and she was... Um, she was a very graceful person. Anyway, one of the um, charities that we are... Um, donating proceeds from tonight's show to is the um, QEH um, palliative care unit and I want to thank particularly um, Hannah Sundquist who's in the audience tonight I know who looked after Anissa so beautifully um, in the last weeks of her life and I also this is controversial but anybody in this whole country who works in palliative care is a goddamn legend Absolutely. and I have never ever heard anyone say I met someone in palliative care and they were a jerk they're all they're amazing. amazing so thank you for that round of applause Hannah wherever you are thank you um, and she had also um, great care at Laurel Hospice as well and also 
her children, Anissa's children are here somewhere. Is anybody feeling brave? Yay! Uh. <laughs> woo, woo, woo! <laughs> Come here! <laughs> Amina was threatening a, um, a cartwheel, but I don't think it's going to happen. Anyway. <laughs> you Cartwheel! Doesn't know how to do a cartwheel? That's fine, girls. <laughs> no, you can't bully your older sister into doing a cartwheel, love. You can do some cartwheels afterwards. You can bully your older sister. I know no. I've seen it happen. No. <laughs> Listen, you don't have to do a cartwheel. We're also, like, just, you know, making total spectacles of you poor innocent children. <laughs> Go back to your cousins. Any twisties? <laughs> no, she may not be innocent. And um, I've got two other things to say. One is that um, our other charity that we have supported um, in the past and are supporting again tonight is the um, Vinnie's Women's Crisis Centre. And yeah! Only been in business since 2017, have assisted 5,500 women and their kids and their pets since then. Um, so, and I think the support that we've given them in the past has um, enabled them to run this program called Ready Steady Go, which is like a kids' fitness and sports program, which makes me very happy. Excellent. So, thank you to um, the representatives that are here this evening. <laughs> and I said I'd tell you something cheery to deal with all the horror, um, and that is that, A, how great has the World Cup been? Has oh, so good. Yes. It has been a soul-cleansing thing. I cannot believe how incredibly exciting those games have been. And also, I love, because like, I've been watching on Optus Sports, because we smartly took out that prescription, that subscription. Um, and I love that there's, the commentary is amazing. They've got all these incredibly just self-assured, no bullshit chicks commentating on their own sport with no self-indulgent why. It's just like they know what they're talking about and they're just like having a really interesting conversation about this mad stuff you just saw. Um, wow. Amazing that sports commentary can be so bullshit free. I, I went to the opener at Homebush between oh, yes, that's Matildas and Ireland. And what the great thing was just looking at the demographic of the crowd and how broad and diverse it was and how... So many blokes, so many kids, so many women, like really mass appeal that I think would have put paid to any notion that women's sport doesn't attract an audience. The other thing that sticks with me that night is the Irish fans on the train were just making me laugh so much. I reckon they sang 16 songs in four minutes. It's just, <laughs> it was just like, I can't believe you guys are squeezing in another one and another one and another one. Two lines. And it's all about efficiency. Song. It was classic. They, they were very entertaining. So that is cheering. The other thing is, this is quite random, um, listen to the greatest podcast um, recently, and it's a Radio Lab podcast. It's like you've got to scroll back a little bit, but not that far. And it's called Crabs All the Way Down. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a podcast about hermit crabs and how hard they are to breed. How, how they had to, to See, breed? I love this about Radio Lab. So random. Yeah, it's just a, like a, there's a couple of little segments <laughs> about crabs. And the first bit is. Hermit crabs are really hard to breed. Did you know that? Like heaps of people have no. them as pets, but try and make them breed. And 
the point of this podcast, <laughs> I interview these specialists, is like nobody cares enough about hermit crabs to work out why they're hard to breed. <laughs> and nobody's ever really nailed breeding them because it's just hard and, you know, you can just go and steal them from the, you know, natural environment and sell them in um, pet shops and then they die because they're being looked after by incompetent children. Oh. Um, but looked after properly, they can live for 30 years. Oh. Ow. 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 And they just change up shells and they just stick new stuff on their shells and, you know, <laughs> they're pretty cool. Anyway, so this podcast is about this woman called, I think her name's Mary, and she's just this lady who's, like, she lives in America, her kids moved out of home, she's a bit of an empty nester, and somebody asks her if they will crab sit, uh, if she will crab oh. sit their crab. And actually, it turns out they're actually moving states. So this is a permanent crab-sitting arrangement. But she doesn't tell her husband, because she's kind of like, uh, I'm just going to look after this crab for a little while. She becomes obsessed. And um, she builds a crabitat for this crab. A what? And the, a crabitat. A crabitat. <laughs> and then she gets some more. And then, before you know it, she is deep in the weeds of oh. breeding hermit crabs. Oh. And I've got to tell you, this podcast, like the, the tales of her adventures, like <laughs> she eventually succeeds where no scientist has ever succeeded in breeding en masse <laughs> hermit crabs in captivity. And the key to her success is the most touchingly beautiful and applicable to humans life lesson I've ever learned. Well, like, you better it's, tell us, because I don't okay. know if I'll listen to this whole well, podcast. Well, so she sets, Frankly. Up, she sets up the Crabitat. Um, there's a second part of the podcast as well, which I'm not going to go into, <laughs> but it's about how crab formats, i.e. like a sort of platter with, you know, flat platter with ten legs, is constantly genetically reappearing everywhere in the universe. Like, crabs are the master species. Mm. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's the second bit. But anyway, back to Mary. So, she builds a crabitat, and she's got, like, when she sees that one of her crabs is pregnant, she builds, like, multiple ponds, and she makes things lovely and easy for the mum crab, and the babies hatch out and they're in the water and she builds little things for them to climb out onto land and it doesn't really work. And then the next year, it happens again, more babies, and she decides that she has to be more merciless. She mm -hmm. has to, like, scuff up the water. She has to make it harder for them. And she said, I'd learned that I needed to be the ocean because the ocean is not kind. The ocean is not organised to serve the needs of one species. This is freaking the, me out because you said the message is the key to, like, functional relationships. No, be the ocean. Be the ocean? Yeah, it's like chaos. Right. And if you try and protect your little crabs from chaos... Right. ..they will die <laughs> because eventually life will just go bam. I love how this is the anecdote you've wheeled out as the cheering up the audience anecdote. <laughs> I've got to tell you, it is pure joy, this podcast, in the same way that the Wham! thing is. Okay. All right, all right. Good. It really is. I mean, it's glorious. Is there an Andrew Ridgely crab that's like friends of the other crab? And Mary is Andrew Ridgely, <laughs> as everybody in this whole theatre has already recognised. 
Okay, now Late I have a party. Okay, right. I've been dying to talk to you about something, and I feel like it's taken me a while to process it, and it is the Barbie film. Oh no. Right. Oh dear. I, no, I feel like I'm going to be disappointing the yeah. audience after that reaction. Right, oh, so God. I undertook oh, to see the Barbie movie before tonight, and I failed. It's fine. Okay, so I've got my notes split into questions, likes, dislikes. And the final thing is comment from Gwen, which was really good. Okay, so my questions. My recollection of playing with Ken as a child is that he was a brunette. Was he? So is it an American yeah, he was. thing? Why was Ken blonde in the film? Sorry, that is your... <laughs> No, That's I your was, key issue with the movie. Well, I, I never actually okay. I never actually owned Ken. I only had like, you know, I was in proximity to kids who owned a Ken and I thought he was a brunette. So can someone just tell me why what's the blonde Ken? Oh Malibu Ken. Oh Malibu Ken. Oh like so there was Thank a Malibu you. Ken. We have okay. a panel of experts in the front row. <laughs> just cannot wait to share the experts. Okay. Oh right, okay, I remember Are Malibu. Are you okay to hang around in case we've got other questions? I do actually. Yeah. I have got another one. Um who was Alan? Ken's, Ken's mate. mate. So was there an Alan doll? Oh. <laughs> okay. Alan, was that, was that A-double-L-E-N or A-L-A-N? A-N. A-N. doesn't seem very Barbie on brand, does it? You're, you're all... Alan! Yeah. Alan! <laughs> Alan! 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 Um, okay, it's that explains like, it. you know, somebody being called Dennis with one N, like, and being a Barbie character, like, Dennis. Okay, so we, it was... Apologies to any Deni in the audience. <laughs> we just so thought, was, mm, was, Alan, well. was Alan basically Skipper? Yes. I see. Alan is to Ken as Skipper is to Barbie. Okay, great. Okay, thank you, everybody. Good night. <laughs> no, no, no. There's got to be more questions. No. Okay. Here's I just love that you're wearing a nightie. It's just like, <laughs> it's very on brand, but also just so... It's efficient. Such effrontery. You wore that nightie to the... Midwinter, Midwinter ball. ball. I uh, The press gallery Midwinter Ball. I did. And I does did. that mean that when you go home, you just shimmy out of your bra and then you're... Wow. Correct. <laughs> And then I just She's put, all about economy. And then I just put a more casual jacket on in the morning and get straight on the plate. <laughs> Good to go. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> returning to my lists. Here's the things I liked about the Barbie movie. Excellent use of the Indigo Girls, who are one of my favourite bands. Really loved that. The acting, I thought, was really fantastic. The acting was fantastic, Lisa. <laughs> I found Ryan Gosling absolutely hilarious. In fact, I thought everyone in it was really fantastic. Um, Margot Robbie... I just Robbie, feel a giant inflatable butt <laughs> just sort of hoving into view over the horizon. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> um, one of the best characters, which I think you'll really enjoy, is Weird Barbie, who's played by Kate McKinnon, who's the Barbie that a kid's played with a bit too rough and they've cut the hair and drawn makeup on the face and always doing the splits. And, you know, so that was actually really clever and funny. So lots of things made My me laugh. My nieces who you've just met actually have a Barbie that's had its face chewed off. What's that one called, guys? Oh, no, they've gone. They're, sorry, they've it's gone It's kind home. of like They're a bored. Weird Barbie. Um, yeah. yeah. And I can't... It's, Actually, half of its face is gone. And I think we can all... I mean, anybody who has a dog, which that's not a part of the Venn diagram that includes you, but, like, <laughs> dogs really like to just maul Barbies in the most unspeakable way. Did you have Barbies when you were a kid? Um, yeah, I think I had one. Right. Um, and then I also had a sock doll that my 
grandmother had made, which is lovely, <laughs> but very different silhouette from Barbie. Um, so, so but I they had, played nicely. I had pink and pretty Barbie and I had Western Barbie. And then I had friends who had like accessories like Barbie camper van, which I really coveted. What? And Nobody ever Barbie got that. Barbie dream home and people who had can and stuff. So we played with what them quite a bit. What about that one that was just like a decapitated Barbie that just had like put makeup a head on. Yeah. with hair that you I could style? That, I secretly wanted that, but I was embarrassed to ask because it was so... <laughs> So it also, visually, it's an amazing film. Like the Barbie world that they've created is absolutely incredible and the attention to detail around that kind of stuff is really fantastic. Does like a 30-year-old Harrison Ford turn up just because they already spent the money on the CGI? <laughs> no. <gasps> and also, I loved that show, Sex Education, and clearly someone involved with it had some link to sex education because three cast members from Sex Education were in the Barbie film. So every time one of them showed up, I was like, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. So that was great. Okay, here's the things I didn't like about it. Um, so the first thing was, and this is not necessarily bad, but I, it reminded me of a Super Bowl ad. That sounds kind of bad. I mean, Well, okay, so when you're watching the Super Bowl and they have everyone does the big spend and they do the most amazing ads and they're really entertaining, they have big-name celebrities in them and they're, like, often little great mini-stories and they're fantastic, at the end of it, it's still an ad for, you know, Budweiser or whatever, even though it's really entertaining. And I still felt, like, I kind of got to the end of the film and I felt like, wow, Mattel would be pretty happy with that because the message of the film was... Um, wow, we've all been playing with Barbie all these years and we thought she was just making us feel bad about ourselves because she was about unattainable female beauty standards. But actually, no, she's not. She's really empowering. She's about female empowerment. And so that made me feel a bit like, am I being, like, just taken for a mug here? And also just because the Lizzo <laughs> Barbie theme song for the film... Australia's called... leading current affairs journalist refuses <laughs> to be conned by Barbie film. <laughs> Mate, I saw you coming! I, I went in there. Nearly got me. I went in there with my guard up. Um, what did Kate McClymont think of it though? <laughs> She's like, right. I'm I after went, gangster Barbie. <laughs> I took Hedley Thomas with me, and we watched the Barbie film, and we, um, no, I, um, and so. Yeah, it kind of made me feel like it was very commercial. And I was going to say the Lizzo song called Pink, which is in the film. It reminds me of. It sounds, and I don't know what button it's pushing, it's something like deep in my subconscious from childhood, but the song kind of goes like, hey Barbie, and it sounds like the TV ad for like Mattel or something. It's oh. pushing some button that to me it sounds like an actual ad. So there was that aspect of it, but then I also feel like, well, movie making is a commercial venture, I'm not so... Oh, this is getting a real Zoolander 2 vibe. Yeah, and then, so then also... To give some context, as we well know, Please. <laughs> as we well know in this podcast, I like to go to the movies and I just like to see Tom Cruise riding a motorcycle over a cliff, right? In an entertaining film, and because I got plenty of it in my day job, I don't really want a lot of politics. So I want just to be entertained if I'm going to a big commercial film. So the second that they start talking about and literally using words like patriarchy, I'm like, oh. I just want to have a nice time. This is not why I went to the Barbie movie. And not think about this. I just want to have a laugh and be entertained. So that's my bias, right? That I'm going there and I don't really want a political film. But And so I'm going to now analyse it on a political level. So but they started it. To be clear. They made it political. Barbie movie, too didactic, says Lee Sales. Well, so first, I, I couldn't quite work out what 
political message they were trying to land, because they squarely were making a, some kind of political message, but they've set it up as kind of a zero-sum thing between men and women where all women are amazing and supportive and kind and all men are aggressive and um, dumb and women can only thrive if men are kept down and if men are thriving then women have to be oppressed. And so I found the message of it kind of... I was like, well, what is this message? Anyway, Gwen went to see it and she wrote... And so I got to the end of it and I was just kind of baffled and like, I don't know what message I was supposed to take from that. Anyway, Gwen went to it and um, she sent me the best analysis of it um, afterwards, which I just thought I cannot have summed this that up. Gwen who myself. created all of the merchandise uh, yes. that's oh, sorry, out I there. Should've, I should have um, said Which, Blake. yeah, I know. And also um, had time to... Um, Provide some cutting critical analysis of the Barbie <laughs> film. <laughs> Have like we got when, the poo drops out there? When, I mean, sorry, I the, what are they called? The number two drops. Number two I drops. I don't know if yeah. they're here tonight, but anyway, um, who knows? So Gwen also texted me. She said, "Yeah, I was, she went for her birthday. She was like, yeah, I was a bit baffled by that.' She goes, "I was just thinking, the whole movie is built like a kid playing with the Barbies. It's like." Once upon a time, and it's a nice slow story to start with, it feels like it has some direction, and then the player and her friend are like, yeah, and then this, and yeah, and then this, and then the story goes bonkers, and it builds and builds and builds and builds, and the two players have their own agenda about where it'll go, and then it ends suddenly because mum calls you because it's dinner time and your mate goes home. <laughs> <laughs> and I just went... You've summed it up. So maybe it was actually absolutely brilliant because it was replicating what it was like to play with right? Barbies. Yeah, she well, you just it. like have a cordial at about the like two hour mark, and then everybody just like spins out into some weird outer universe. Anyway, and I am dying for you to see it because I really want to get your I'm take dying for me on to it. See it. I'm waiting till I have two consecutive hours where I'm not <laughs> prepping kitchen things, the kitchen or stuff. Just, yeah, you know. So I think it'll have to be the Barbie analysis is going to have to be a two parter because I need to hear your take is. on yeah, the absolutely. Barbie film. I would didn't you, not enjoy it, but I just kind of would was you like, come back and watch it with me and no. then like Lee explain it while I'm no. Okay. Absolutely no way. What about Oppenheimer? Have you seen that? Oh, look. <laughs> no, I've not. And I've just got, I've also not been to see Mission Impossible. And it's, again, another I'm sorry, one I love that that's, that's all bracketed <laughs> together. Like. No, it's all, again, part of my own bias, which is I just hate a really super long film. And it, then I know I get the irrits because I'm constantly watching it. Well, that could have been edited, that could have been condensed, and I'm watching it on that level. And so it just wrecks it for me and so I haven't been to see either because they're both super so long. So at the 90-minute mark you're like, all right then, all right. And then yeah. I lean to the person next to me and go, well, you know the Stephen King book Misery was turned into a wonderful film, <laughs> which is my current go-to, so as you well know. Yeah. Um, I haven't watched Oppenheimer either, but I have listened to a really good... Do you listen to The Rest is History? Does anyone listen to that podcast? No, Jeez, it's a like good it. po podcast. Okay, so I can't remember either of the host names because I'm very tired, um, but they are excellent. They like these sort of history kind of boffins, and they just go through events in history, but they're both very funny. And so they've done an Oppenheimer one that just sort of looks at his childhood, very unusual dude, um, and pick out some quite bizarre stories about him um, and... One of the things that I like about these two, because I've only just recently started listening to them um, on Jeremy's recommendation, and today I listened to most of their episode on the Raiders of the Lost Ark, because we were oh, talking about yeah. Harrison Ford, the uh, 
you know, ineffably youthful uh, star of those films. And um, they just go through the historical truth of the Ark of the Covenant. And oh, yeah, fantastic. they're just like, well, here's how it appears in the Bible. It's a bit mixed up. Uh, everybody's a bit confused about exactly what it looks like, but there's generally assumed to be sort of carrying loops that you can put poles through to carry this thing, but that doesn't make much sense because it's supposed to be deadly to even be near, so why would you put a pole through it and carry it? <laughs> but anyway, I mean, if you were trying to break into Jericho, it seems to work, <laughs> and like, you know, Canaan, or, you know, can part the waters, got all these amazing powers, which is why the Nazis were so into it, etc. Anyway, it's a terrific, interesting podcast, okay. and um, I encourage you to listen to it if for no other reason than because these two guys are actually coming to Adelaide quite soon to do... They're doing a live tour of, of, oh. um, of Australia. And I think we've got tickets in November to see them in Sydney, but they're coming to Adelaide as well, for which many thanks, right? How many people dodge Adelaide, right? Like, we're like They're really? coming to Adelaide. They're somewhere in Norwood, I think. Look it up. The is rest that, is history. They're very cool. Is that a standard thing that people tour but they don't do Adelaide? Mate, wham! <laughs> Wham! Did not come to Adelaide. Did not come to Adelaide. Oh. I remember salty tears. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have been allowed to go, but like I remember. Um, one thing that I will say about Logies recently um, is that Kitty Flanagan was performing, I think, here. Right? Did anyone go? Far out. She is so good. Like she is a top shelf human. Do you know how I know? On Sunday night, she was booked to do her live show here and then she got nominated for a Walkley and Logie. she refused to pull out. She honoured her commitment to be on stage here and she won the... She won the Logie, Logie. sorry, Walkley. <laughs> um, she won the Logie, but she was here because she loves Adelaide. She's like, I've always been kindly treated in Adelaide and I will never let an Adelaide audience down. <laughs> and that is how you know that that lady is a stand-up person. Sound, anyway. Sounds like somebody who didn't have a handy pair of pyjamas set for a black tie event. <laughs> Correct. I mean, that's probably right. Anyway, and of course, you know, um, the new season of Utopia is like... She's just a ridiculously talented woman. And a good person, so there you go. I've not met her, but, like, I just... <laughs> I really haven't... We can't be in the same place at the same time because of the curly hair principle. Uh, <laughs> you know, on the, in the Logies, I had to get into the um, limousine with Costa, and I think it was, like, the sort of giant hair. <laughs> we had to be sort of packed in like this. Anyway, sorry. Um, uh, I've got off the topic, weirdly enough, but... Um, uh, what I will say is that that podcast is terrific. So get onto it and then go and see them here. One thing that they both do, these two total historical eggheads, is that they've got this shorthand that makes me just absolutely cack myself where um, one of them will say, oh, yes, I was researching this in the Bodleian Library the other day. <laughs> and that's their shorthand for Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny. Oh, that's great. I was in the Bodleian researching this the other day. <laughs> Just typed it into Wiki. Yep. Oh, that's great. Um, another thing that I've been want dying to talk to you about and I've been sitting on it waiting till we actually um, met for a podcast... Hatching it like an egg. Is Bring it forth. So, you know, we both loved Fleabag. Yes, we did. And everyone loved Fleabag. So, um, the... 
it, originally, as everyone knows, that was a play at the National Theatre and the Dendi has recently played the... You know how they sometimes play the National Theatre productions? They played the Fleabag recording. So I went to see it. Oh, man, it was so interesting seeing... Because you know how so often you might... You've read a book or something and then you see the film adaptation or the TV adaptation. So going in the reverse direction to then see the original was really fascinating. So it was a one-woman show. So obviously none of the characters who are in the TV show are in the show, right? And so you're watching no her... No hot priest. Amazingly, the content is really, cleaves really closely to season one without anyone else ever actually appearing. But the writing and her performance is so vivid that you almost feel like that they are appearing. So that was just incredible seeing how she did that, where she would kind of be relaying like oh, I had this conversation with my sister like one of the bits that stuck, sticks in my head and I forget the gag but it is in the television show she and the sister it's in an early episode go to that feminist lecture that their fathers bought them a subscription to and the sister says something and Phoebe Waller-Bridge is trying to not make a joke about it and she's trying to bite her tongue and then she looks at her sister and then she just looks away and she's trying to not laugh when she does it in the stage production it's absolutely incredible the way that she does it without having another human there. And that kind of repressed laughter that you're trying to get under control, she does it amazingly. So, because I always think of her, even though she's the star of that show, I often think of her as a writer because the writing of that show is so strong. But watching her on stage, I was so struck by her physicality and that kind of rubberiness of her face and her body because she's kind of so long and kind of slim and... Um, a bit amorphous in her movements. But it was one of those performances where you feel like, a bit like when I talked about Benedict Cumberbatch and the Frankenstein thing. I was sitting in the theatre watching it and thinking, I feel like I'm watching an absolute star. Like, just from this one performance, I can see that you're a major star. Like, there was just something in her. But amazingly, too, like, you know how in the season one, Olivia Coleman's character, the stepmother, that's quite a well-developed character and she's amazing. There's only one sentence referring to her in the entire oh, play. Oh, that's interesting. And there's only a very limited reference to the father as well. There's oh, a, the father is... You know, yeah, very well pivotal, fleshed out character yeah. too. There's a lot about the rat boyfriend, and she again her physicality of every time she refers to him is just so superb. There's quite a bit about the sister. There's a lot about the friend that she owned the cafe with. Um, anyway, I'm not sure the if guinea it's pig still, cafe, the guinea pig cafe. Yeah. Anyway, it was if you get a chance to see it, and you can actually National Theatre at home, you can actually watch and download things. It's so well worth it. if you're keen to watch on the small screen an account <laughs> on stage of something that later became a small screen production, <laughs> like... You can't go I past mean, <laughs> this. Yeah, it was great. What have you been watching? I meant to go see that and I didn't and I've just been... I've been in such a spiral, like I just have had zero time to do anything. But I have seen um, movies on planes um, and... <laughs> And I did um, see Julia Louis-Dreyfus's film, You Hurt My Feelings, which is all about, like, distrusted marriage. And it's... Oh. I sort of saw it after I saw the Indiana Jones kind of reboot and we were looking... We were talking about Mission Impossible and we were laughing about these dudes who, like, find it difficult to age. <laughs> you know, because yeah, yeah. they're like, I'm just going to team of CGI experts to make me look 25 again. <laughs> which is, like... Amazing if you can 
marshal the resources, I guess, <laughs> or could be bothered, I don't know. But I really like this film from Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and I've been a little bit listening to her podcast, which is about, um, it's oh, yeah. called Wiser Than Me, I think. Yeah, is it good? Yeah, well, it starts off with Jane Fonda, and she's her whole mission is just to, like, interview older women who get a bit shut down and, you know, just ask them about, well, how do you feel now that you're 70 as opposed to 50 or 40 or 20 or whatever? And um, it's, it's a little bit... I mean, it's a little bit, oh, my God, you're amazing. But right. it's like, there's some good bits in it, too. Um, and I think it's difficult to avoid the, oh, my God, you're amazing. But I actually think Julia Louis-Dreyfus is one of the great enduring talents, you know. She is... Oh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Like, amazing. Totally amazing. But I also like the fact that in this film, um, which is called You Hurt My Feelings, um, she's a writer... And she's so happily married to her husband and she's, like, really pooping out this novel that she's, you know, struggling with and he's like, it's amazing, it's so good. You're amazing. You're such a good writer. I love it. And then she overhears him <laughs> in the sock department of a, <laughs> of a, of a um, department store saying to his friend, who's also, you know the partner of her friend, Ugh, it's so exhausting, it looks no good, but I mean, I, you know, oh. like, oh, and so it's like a breach of trust in the very heart of this marriage. Anyway. Oh, that sounds great good. film. Is yeah. it a comedy or a drama? It's both, both. I'd say, oh. but like also, she's incredible and she hasn't made any stupid efforts to have her face butchered or anything. Like, she just, you know... Who's, who plays the husband? I can't remember because oh. I'm so tired, but he was very good. <laughs> and I, really, it's a good film, and I, I, I literally saw it, like, three weeks ago, and I've forgotten all details, apart from the fact <laughs> Other than that the fact she that was, it was good. really good. And I hadn't really planned to bring it up. It's just that, you know, we were, have been thinking a bit about people who refuse to age, and um, I also, think she's not... An example of that. Talking of the Logies reminds me of Mara Dusseldorf. Have you have you seen her? Yeah, Bay of Fires. Yeah. Far out. What's that it about? Is off the charts. Okay, so I'll tell you what it's about. And it's it's basically about Marta being a ridiculously clever writer, producer, director. I may be insulting other people who did those roles in this show, but like she has created this drama. It's called Bay of Fires. She is the lead character. She is kind of like a um, wealthy sort of eastern suburbs lady, lives in Melbourne, runs a family business that she's sort of inherited from her dad and they have this gorgeous house and two kids and her husband you don't know that much about um, and then all of a sudden, she comes home and finds her, like, housekeeper dead in the garden. She's in the shopping centre and someone tries to kill her, you know, and she's clearly being assassinated. Someone tries to kill Marta. <laughs> Correct, oh. yeah. So she's clearly a target. Somebody's right. been to her house, killed somebody else, and this woman who's a cop shows up in the shopping centre and just says you've got to get out of here right now. Um, don't even grab anything. 
um, you need to go into essentially witness protection. So she and her two children move with absolutely nothing. They don't even have their phones or, you know, they move to this very small village in Tasmania and they start with nothing. Nobody knows who they are. They don't know what they're doing. They don't even know why they're there. Um, the kids are just like, what the hell, mum? <laughs> and... Um, and they don't have any clothes. They've got to go to the like <laughs> local thrift shop. And so she's basically from the get-go in this series wearing this sort of lumpy parka and a sort of <laughs> crocheted jumper and this sort of hippie skirt. And I gotta say, like I don't, I'm not. I mean, I'm a, about episode four, I think, because I've been sort of nibbling away at it late at night and then sometimes falling asleep, even though I'm so interested. I haven't been watching in optimum conditions, but like. Um, the main thing is just Marta owns the screen. I mean, you know, sometimes you get that thing with Aussie dramas where you're a bit like, ooh, is anyone going to be a bit wobbly? And she is just... Sorry, <laughs> I just sometimes get that because sometimes there's a bit of a, like... Is, everyone, is there a bit of a playing up of the kitschy bit or, like, what's happening? And she's just, like, terrifying. Oh, great. She's so good. And you watch her face and everything is happening on her face. She's a, she's a superb actor and she really pulls this project together. The kids are great as well. And I still have no idea why someone is trying to kill her. Um, <laughs> and I texted Marta the other night and went, like, oh my God, this is incredible. Like, why? What's going on? She's like, episode five, baby. It all becomes clear. So I'm approaching the reveal, but like, it's a tremendous piece of work. Um, she it. is amazing. Do you know what I yes, feel she is. Like Also, Pamela Rabe's in it. Rabe's in it. Rabe! Oh, Rabe's in it. Um, oh, and there's Rabe's this great the scene where, because Rabe is this kind of like senior public personage in the village. Like she's oh, just yeah. like, hello, Mara Dusseldorf. <laughs> You're blowing. Like, what are you doing here? And... Um, Marta runs into Pamela in the street and says, I'm sorry I'm so dreadfully dressed. I just, these are the only clothes that I could find in the op shop. And <laughs> Rabe just goes, well, that's my old skirt you're wearing. Oh, great. Yeah, absolute power move. Oh. And then Marta uh, crumbles and walks off. And oh. then Rabe walks off with her buddy who just says, that's not your skirt. And oh. Rabe goes... I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I good. never saw the final seasons of Wentworth. I feel like I need to go back and because I did adore. Um, sure, you get all your that. rabe brutality at the oh, one shop love here. Rabe. Though, like she's so good. Now, it's like getting a colonic. Do you know what I feel like I haven't been doing a lot of this year, and I just think it's bit attention span being shot. I haven't been doing a lot of reading, but I did just read a book that was really quite unusual, and I bought it because I liked the cover. Um, which occasionally you just do, right? So it's called Before the Coffee Gets Cold by Toshikazu Kawaguchi. I don't know if anyone else has seen it in the bookshop because it has a very appealing cover. I wish actually I'd brought it to show you. So you're just here to talk about the appealing cover that just you're cover. now unable that's, to show us. That's all I want okay, to talk great. about the cover. Um, Worst show and tell ever. It was a Japanese bestseller um, and it's doing pretty well out here too. So it was, it's an unusual little book. So partly it's unusual because... It's translated, so you know how that sometimes gives things just a slightly different tone. Um, but then also the subject matter is kind of unusual. It's about time travel. And so the premise is there's this cafe in Tokyo 
and you can go back in time, but the rules are so strict that hardly anyone chooses to do it. And so I've often felt like that. <laughs> like every time I watch those time traveling kind of movies, I just think that's so exhausting and confusing. And like everything everywhere all at once is like a, such a good movie. But at the end, I was just needed a lie down and a reassurance yeah. that that won't ever happen to me. The only way to watch everything everywhere all at once, I reckon, is to stop attempting to like make any overall narrative sense and to just kind of let it wash over you. That's a glorious movie. It was amazing. But when you yeah. explained it to me, I thought my brain is not going to like that at <laughs> all. But then I loved it. Yeah, it was. I thought it was great. I'd be curious to see it again because I feel like it's one of those things that reflects anything you want it to reflect. Given I don't want to see time. it again. I'm done. Really? Once is enough. It was great. Thank you. Over. So, so this book um, is... The, the rules of the time travel are... It's this particular seat in the cafe that you have to sit in if you want to go back in time. You, When you go back in time, you're not allowed to leave the seat. You can only see somebody else who's previously been in the cafe. And... <laughs> And this is already a massively balls-aching premise for me. I just like, <laughs> what was the middle bit again? Sorry, and keep going. You, the thing that sends you back in time is you're handed a cup of coffee and you have to return to your present day <sighs> before the coffee gets cold, hence the title of the book. Oh, I see, before the... Yeah. Yep. And so four people... Thanks, I hate it. Four, pe <laughs> four, <laughs> four people... Uh, it's four p different people who go back in time for various reasons. Um, and it, when it starts, you just think, how is this ever going to work? I mean... Yes, that is a <laughs> persistent question for me also, I must confess. But it does, and I quite liked it. And I got to the end of it, which I, is more than I can say for most books I've read this year. And, um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Richard Feidler was talking to me about um, interviews, the worst kind of interviewee, and he said, because it makes it so hard to edit, it's the person who tells a long anecdote like I just did, and then they get to the end of what they're saying and they go, so, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually brings me to my, like, my book plug. Oh. Check this out. No, no, sorry, but, I mean, I've only just got this in my hot little hands tonight. That's Lee Sales's new book. It's called Storytellers. So... Here's why this lady's crazy like a fox. She's written a book that is basically her running the tape recorder <laughs> over phone conversations with people she already knows <laughs> who are really good at their jobs. And some of them I even asked if that was okay. I know, yeah. No, no, no it was all authorised. Anyway, um, because it's sort of a book about journalism, but you've done this really smart thing where you haven't... I mean, don't ever quote me that I've said that it's smart, but I mean... <laughs> Instead of doing this sort of writing profiles of various journalists where you do things like, Laurie Oakes laughs musically as he folds <laughs> his impossibly long legs into the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> You've just gone, let's have a conversation and I'll tape it and transcribe it and then I'll publish it and I will pocket all the profits. <laughs> it's like, pretty great. But also it means that all of these conversations are in the voices of these Know, often quite nuts journalists that you've interviewed. Um, and I love that on the back sleeve, instead of people doing quotes saying, Lee Sales is one of the preeminent journalists <laughs> of her generation, she just like grabbed little quotes from the people that she's interviewed. So, <laughs> so Trent Dalton says, The lesson is go with the story, man. 
When Alex Malat says go down to the basement, I'm sorry, you gotta go. When Renee Zellweger wants a shot of tequila, shoot the shot. <laughs> Out of context, I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> also, um, Kate McClymon. I'm just an innately optimistic person. I think people might want you to stop what you're doing, but they don't actually want to kill you. Well, that's something I cling to. <laughs> uh, also, um, Samantha Maiden, Adelaide lady. <laughs> the greatest pool quote, I think, in this entire book. Some of my best stories come out of getting the shits. <laughs> Which is like, you talk to Sammy, and she's just like, Absolutely. sometimes I just get the shits. She like, that's how that Hawaii tells, yeah. Scott Morrison story well, that, came she about. She tells the best anecdote in that um, we, about she broke the story that Scott Morrison was in Hawaii when the bushfires were burning. And so she tells the story of how she actually uncovered that story. And what she says is that um, she just kind of noticed that he seemed to not be around and that Michael McCormack, who was the deputy prime minister at the time, was kind of taking the running on things. And so she rang the office and she was like... Is, where is Scott Morrison? And, and they were kind of being rude to her and, and, you know, sort of, you're the only idiot who cares about this go away kind of vibe. And, she, and then she said, and that really gave me the shits and some of my best stories come out of getting, when I get the shits. And then she talks about, she was like, right, where is he? And so she's ringing every person she can think of with any connection to any airport and unions and baggage handlers. She was ringing baggage handlers. Yeah, at, uh, she was Sydney ringing airport literally Because she was could. like under-occupied, it was January, and she's just like, do you know what? I'm bored and I've got the shits. So I'm and, off, like, and she finally found someone that had seen Scott Morrison getting on this plane to Hawaii, and then that was how that story came out. The quote I actually like the best is the Richard Feidler one. On oh, the yeah, this there. is pretty great. Um, Richard Feidler, great interviewer. She say, he says, occasionally you're talking to someone and you go, oh, my God, I'm interviewing a giant dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is something you and I both have experience with, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> you, have it's you, so good. Have you read the inscription I wrote to you? In no. A, oh, oh, you should read that out. I hope oh. you can read my handwriting. God, all right. You might enjoy reading. Does this mean I can't resell even, it? That's why it's here, because I brought it for her tonight, because they just came back from the printer this week, and so I signed one for her, and then... I'm in the top 200 of people to get the first, <laughs> like... No. For Crab... Please feel free to dispose of this when done. You know I would. Love sales. <laughs> it's very touching. Thank you. <laughs> I'll do my normal thing when I dispose of it, which is to put your home address on the inside flyleaf <laughs> and then just give it to Vinnie's, uh, which is also one of our charities this evening. Um, can I just say, I forgot to say this about Vinnie's. Um, the delight of recycled clothing is one of the chief firing joys of my life. Oh, you're and amazing at it I too. I am amazing at it. Um, yeah. And in fact, I wore to the Logies a gown that I bought on eBay uh, 15 years ago, a Vivian Westwood gown, bought it for 150 bucks. Incredible. Right? And then I lost it in my cupboard for a while in a box because I think I was pregnant when I bought it. There's no way it would have fit. But then, you know, things change. Um, and I found it recently. I went, I'm wearing that to the ladies. Literally any time you have a black tie thing and you go, what should I wear? I'm like, get that Vivian Westwood dress out. It's such a good dress. Very good dress. Yeah. And also, I've left the tags in so I can resell it as new.
buy shoes on eBay. Um, sorry, I mean, like, I actually, it's not just an eBay thing. I, my alternative outfit this evening was a, like, Harry Who original 80s suit mm. that I bought at Finney's here in Adelaide when I was here um, visiting Anissa for $13.50. Wow. And the only reason I didn't wear it was because this is quite a dark set and it's quite a dark coloured suit, so I would have been like a disembodied head. But I will, <laughs> I'll post a picture of it because wow, that's the fun. greatest bargains are to be found and the most original fashion is to be found in a recycled fashion venue. And I must tell you, she's an outstanding giver of birthday gifts because she's constantly finding stuff that she then gives to me because I'm too, I don't have the patience to go trawling she's things. She's too lazy, for... she lacks the imagination, but I and know so then I open, what's good for you. I open a present and it's like, what, this isn't a Akira, Akira Isagawa dress? And she'll go, I know, I found it for 25 bucks on eBay. <laughs> it's like, wow. I'm very quick to acquaint her with how little I'm prepared to spend. <laughs> But it's the time her. and effort. Right? Now, it you've is. been doing some reading as it's well, the love. obviously. Yeah, I have. And I've got, there. like, a tremendous book yeah. to recommend. Um, and it was recommended to me by Greta. Greta Marks, the chatter that I met on a, on a plane months and months ago. And she's been a constant source of really good recommendations. And this book, and I think some people here would have read it because it's been out for a little bit and it's also a sort of, you know, New York Times bestseller. But um, it's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Yes? Who's read it? Far out. And it is, you know when people tell you this is such a great book and you think, is it though? Yeah. And also the premise of the book, it's sort of about video games. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Am I going to like that? And you dared to diss my time travel book? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. So it's about, the book is about a lifelong friendship between a boy two and a girl gamers. who... <laughs> yes, two gamers. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Stay with me. Sounds great. So a boy and a girl and they meet originally because he's in hospital um, and she is visiting her sister in hospital who, ha who has leukaemia and they meet in the sort of starlight kids lounge basically that has like an Atari kind of, you know, and they play this game together and they become friends and then they kind of keep in touch and then they fall out for inscrutable reasons and then they meet again when they're in college and they start designing video games together and it's the most I mean I'm not that interested in video games but the story of their friendship is the most complicated profound beautifully captured mechanics of a non-romantic friendship mm. um, anyway it is such a page turner it is so perfectly executed the plot twists are extraordinary and as i read it so our friend sophie bram who you know i yeah. respect her opinion she recommended it to me and she oh, said that okay. she read it and the whole way through she was filled with this mounting sense of dread that this was somebody's first novel <laughs> She was like, it was oh, so good. my God, you're 22 and this is your first novel, isn't it? I hate you. And then she got to the end, she's like, oh. She said, I refused to Google the author until I'd finished it. And then she did and she's like, it's a tenth book. Oh, oh amazing. What a now I'm so oh, pleased for amazing. you that you've 
pulled off this incredible piece of work. So I, um, so my daughter Audrey, um, I gave it to her after I'd finished it. I went and I bought two copies of it because I read it on my Kindle, and then I bought two copies. I gave one to my sister-in-law Margot, and I gave one to Audrey, and I handed it to her, and she sat down in this armchair. I was out doing something, and she cracked it open. And when I came back five hours later, still there in oh. the chair. And I said, oh, how's that going? She's like, this book has colonised my soul. <laughs> it's that good. It can really she, is. Can she lend it to me now? Because that sounds great. You are such a cheapskate. Come on. Can like, I also, I really yeah. want to ask about something on your list because I loved her last book, Patricia Lockwood, Pre-Study. Oh, yeah. Because I loved No One Is Talking About This. So the backstory of this is that I, after I read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, I texted Virginia Gay... Clang. And I said, you need to read this book. And she said, oh, okay. Um, you need to read Pre-Study because that's the greatest book that I've read, you know, all year. And I indeed have read Pre-Study and it is stupidly hilarious. Oh, okay, yeah. great. So it's like a sort of quasi... It's a memoir, essentially, of um, a young woman who grows up in sort of the Lutheran church and her dad then becomes a minister and... She runs away and marries someone she met online. It is a very, very unusual story, but so sharply and comedically told. The comic timing is ridiculous. I actually haven't read No One's Talking oh, About This. Oh, okay. I was like, about to ask you if it was similar in tone to that because I found that really funny and yeah. clever and kind of like darkly sort of dark but yeah it was it was darkly fantastic dark. Mm. no darkly <laughs> i was gonna say darkly clever and funny but i was like but i just said well, clever just and like, funny so i don't know lightly dark anyway i loved it dear god we're really we're agreeing on a lot aren't we can't we violently disagree on something um i think you're going to really like the barbie film so that'll be a probably violent well, i probably will um so I need to just remind people that this is out when. Oh, honestly, I d actually, I, I know. know it looks like I, I brought it for it. her to pimp no. on stage. I no. literally just brought it because it just came from the printer and I wanted I actually, to get it off my kitchen table. I did it off my own bat. Yes. And also to cover the fact that I'm about to say, watch Kitchen Cabinet when it comes back on um, August the 15th. <laughs> Ah, now it all makes sense. That's right. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, we haven't made that show for like six years now. Wow. Yeah. No, it's been a real hiatus. Wow. Because we've sort of ran out of interesting people. <laughs> we did like, we did six series in sort of four years and we've burned through. Now, that's not to say that there are in not interesting people in the parliament that we didn't get to the first time round. But this one is like... It's been a big shake-up. It's, like, so. it's like the beasts returning to the Serengeti or something like There's just like a lot of very interesting people. And I think it is... I mean, we've shot now seven out of eight of the episodes and it is the most interesting series we've ever made. Like, Great. It's like, and part of it is... I think when we first started making that series, it was like, well, we better like find some... Like there's... We were, like, looking for women and, like, there's so many dudes. We had a real crisis on uh, middle-aged white men this time. We're like, how can we find a middle-aged white man? There's just, like, so many <laughs> diverse options. That's anyway, great. Yeah, and there's, yeah, some of them are very fascinating. I know you've seen the... I've seen a rough one. cut of one of them and I've found it very enjoyable. 
It's great. That's all I'm going to say. Play enjoyed by all. I don't know. I don't Please know how us. much I'm allowed to say about anything, so I just won't say much other than I. Found oh, you've it really seen the Peter Dutton one. I yeah. have. Yeah, yeah. but You're I don't want to. Say that. I'm sure you don't want me to just drop what all the content is. No, no don't. But it's but. definitely. <laughs> It's definitely worth a watch. <laughs> Indeed, I will it say is. that it's very interesting. So um, now I'm looking at the clock, and I know how you feel about 9 p.m. and it's 5 2 because <laughs> I've got a long and winding story to wind up with. Are you done? Because I'm, I'm done. Really, yeah, I'm, I'm done. going to. I've, my I'm going to take it out here. Okay, you take it out. The, okay, take it out, baby. I'm going to conclude the evening with a very Adelaide story. Because you know the thing about South Australia is that everyone is related. And if you're not related, you at least know, you know, you'll know someone in common. So I will tell you a story about um, a book that I have read and enjoyed very recently that has repeated on me in a very interesting way. I have been, as, as I said, quite busy recently and I got an email from a, uh, a publisher saying got this amazing book, um, would, it's by a South Australian writer, um, would you like to read it and blurb it? And I said, I absolutely cannot because... Blurb it means giving a quote for do the a little, front cover. You know, do a little, Lee Sales is one of the preeminent, you know. <laughs> and sometimes you can do that quickly if you've got time. And um, one of the great examples of that is that fabulous book that I read in two seconds by, um, uh, God, what's his name? I've got to look it up. I mean, we asked her to blurb mine, but I she know. said no. She I said, said she no, was I'm too, too busy. busy. Forget about it. <laughs> this is so, you know, um, embarrassing because I love this book so much um, and I need to mention it again. I've talked about it on the pod before, Robert Skinner's book, I'd Rather Not. Oh, yeah, you oh. love that. He comes from the Adelaide Plains, allegedly, but then when I questioned him closely, I've never met him, um, turns out he's, he's a bit like foothills, so I'm a, I'm a flatland person. The hills people make me a bit nervous, but anyway, <laughs> Robert Skinner now works in Melbourne. He was the one who wrote that like hilarious, it's a collection of stories. Remember the one with the camel train and the parents? Oh, yeah. I yeah. was just, I couldn't yeah, even read it out loud because it, it was laughing. so funny. Anyway. Yeah. That's out now. I stupidly talked about it before it was even published, and then, oh, which is like the worst thing you. you can do. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, it's if you're looking for a laugh, the most glorious book. But the one that I'm about to talk about is a different one that I haven't discussed, and I refused to blurb it because I was too busy. And then I went to the South Australian Museum back when I was in Adelaide a few weeks ago visiting Anissa, and I... Um, Caught up with my old friend Justine Van Morick, who is deputy director at the South Australian Museum. But before that, she was the curator of the art collection at Parliament House. <laughs> and so, remember when we did that documentary called The House? You yes. know, which is like, and Justine was the art curator that talked me through the memorable recollection about the um, coat of arms and how it was a. Um, uh, a design requirement that there be visible testicles on the kangaroo. <laughs> it's sort of like an unforgettable moment. And certainly when my daughter watched that series with her year six class <laughs> prior to going to Canberra, she said she wanted to sink into the floor when the <laughs> testicles were mentioned. But anyway, thanks, Justine. Very, very funny, excellent, observant woman. And now she's at the museum, and I went there to see the Lego exhibition, um, which was 
tremendous there recently. And um, while I was there visiting Justine, this chap stepped forward with a brown paper package and he said, hello, uh, my name's Walter. Um, and he works at the museum. He's like, I've written this book and I'd like you to have it. And I unwrapped it in the privacy of my own home, obviously, later, not knowing what to expect. And it is the very book that I'd, you know, not been able to blur because I was too busy. And I started reading it. Far out! It's so good! Oh. And it is a biography of young Rupert Murdoch. Oh! Ow. And it's called, rather literally, Young Rupert. The making... Who did blurb it, by the way? Is there okay, a I'm about to tell yeah. you. <laughs> okay. Because, like... Actually, a better person than me, so no hard feelings. Um, young Rupert, The Making of the Murdoch Empire. Jenny Hawkins blurbed it. This is the young Rupert, as you've never seen him before. A riveting, rollicking tale. It bloody is. And also, it's all about Adelaide. It sort of starts in the 50s. Um, and it's sort of about Sir Keith Murdoch establishing a stranglehold on the South Australian media. And then what happens when Rupert Murdoch kind of lobs into town to sort of take it all over and a bit about his years in Oxford. Anyway, far out. It's so interesting and it's beautifully researched and very nicely written. It's super dense with detail, but you know when people write history and it can be plodding, you know, yeah. when you, they put everything in, sometimes there's a curatorial eye that really makes the difference between boring history and interesting yes. history. And it really is just finding the sparkles. I was thinking about this, I remember when I read um, Julia Baird's biography of Queen Victoria, a heavily written about woman, but Julia's little talent is just to research deeply but not get too into the weeds where you are immune to these little sparkling, charming moments. And that is the joy of this book. But there's something that I found out for the first time, and maybe it was just because I, you know, embarrassingly never studied history at school. Like, I I don't know. I was keeping my options open, so I did physics and chemistry and maths. Oh, oh did you? Wow. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So bad. And now I always feel like I know nothing about history because I should have... Anyway, never mind. This is my drama, not yours. Um, <laughs> but listen to this. So... You know how the street over there is called Port Wakefield Street? So you're yawning. You actually just yawned, mate. I mean, it's 9.01. It's one minute past and she's already done the yawn. I listened to you talk about not one, not two, but three Wham! documentaries, mate. Like, some respect, if you wouldn't mind. Carry on. I am... I return <laughs> to the design of Adelaide. So, <laughs> oh, God. Edward Gibbon Wakefield is the dude who developed the plan for Adelaide. Like, it was the, it was the non-penal colony, colony, right? And how are we going to attract free settlers and blah, blah, blah? He came up with the idea of, like, well, why don't we just offer capitalists really, like, cheap land parcels and then we use that money to subsidise labourers to travel here without having to steal anything. That's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, <laughs> that's the short version. Anyway, <clears throat> I'm going to read out loud from this bit now, and I might read a few extra pages just to punish you <laughs> for your assholery. But anyway, <laughs> so Wakefield oh. <laughs> was one of South Australia's chief architects, 
An enterprising social climber, he had big dreams of land ownership, influence, and perhaps one day even political office. His plan to attain them, however, mainly consisted of marrying vulnerable teenage heiresses. <laughs> when the inheritance from his first wife, brackets, Eliza, married at 16 and dead by 21, close brackets, proved too modest for him his ambitions, he lured another well-connected adolescent away from boarding school and tricked her into eloping to Gretna Green. The honeymoon, that is, the kidnapping, <laughs> ended with the marriage annulled by a special act of parliament and the oh. groom thrown into prison. Designer of your town, people. It was from behind bars at Newgate Prison that Wakefield looked towards the colonies, poring over every scrap of reading material he could find. He grew fixated on the overlapping problems of crime, poverty, politics, and colonization, and in 1829 published a series of anonymous writings collectively known as The Letter from Sydney. Purporting to be written by a frustrated settler in New South Wales, it was published in 11 parts by the London Morning Chronicle before being syndicated across the emerging colonial press from Sydney to Hobart. One Tasmania, news Tasmanian newspaper labelled its mysterious author the best political writer in these colonies, while others wrote it off as scraps of political economy, of Jesuitical sophistry, of libel and misrepresentation. Fake news, in other words. Never went to Australia, as far as I can tell. Wrote accounts of colony life from prison. <laughs> right? Anyway, look, that's just that's, a little... That's very well written. Yes, it is. Yeah, like yeah. informative, yet with a lovely touch of humour. Yes. Okay. I told you it was a good book. It is. I love that <laughs> yeah. you didn't believe me until I read a bit. But sorry anyway, that, yeah, lots sorry of very good uh, Murdoch detail as well. Anyway, it's glorious and um, I've absolutely loved it and I'm sorry I didn't, you know, get off my fat ass to blurb it <laughs> earlier but I hope this makes up for it. Walter, lovely to meet you for that awkward two minutes and um, thank you for giving me your book. Good and that is an Adelaide story, baby. <laughs> and that's our Adelaide show. And that's our Adelaide show. Oh, yeah, that's it. She's really winding us up because she's already yawned and that is pretty much <laughs> the end of the night, I reckon, as it far is. as Lee Sales goes. Thank you for coming to Adelaide. Love Thank Adelaide. Thank you for coming out. Thank you, everybody. Crabs all the way down, baby. <laughs> she's already wearing her nighty. She's already most of the way there. Sinead, I can't dance.